Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School as we are in Lesson 5 of the Biblical Counseling 101 class, Why Do I Do What I Do and How Can I Change? Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. I pray that it would be profitable, Lord, that we would come away encouraged in the sufficiency of your word and the supremacy of your life. Jesus, we love you. Help me to be able to explain well in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. It's good to see so many of you here right at the start of class. I feel like more, more people are here at the beginning than previously, so that's encouraging to me. It does seem like I have a hard time getting to the questions at the end of a lesson, but I'm trying to make up for it with the questions I give at the very beginning of class, kind of like the follow-ups the previous week. I'm going to do that a little bit again this week. Just These questions come up either from my own thinking or just some of the conversations that I have after, after our lessons. But last week, we were talking about biblical counseling and psychotropic drugs. And two questions that came up that I want to bring to your attention. First is, how are demons involved in what's called mental illness and or psychotropic drugs? That's kind of a big question. The short answer is, we won't be able to say for sure in any particular situation. But our mission is the same regardless. It is to minister God's word according to God's spirit and let God do his supernatural work. It is even able to set people free who may be influenced in some way by demons. So that's the short answer. We're not going to be able to say for sure in any particular situation how demons are involved. The longer answer is, and I'll give that to you too, the Bible is clear that our world and the lives of people in the world are affected by spiritual forces, both good and evil. Angels and demons are a reality, and they are at work in the world. We see from the Bible that when it comes to demons, they can have a physical effect on people. Satan afflicted Job physically. There was a woman in the New Testament who was bent double because of a demon. We also see from the scriptures that demons can have some sort of influence or effect on a person's inner man. Not just the outer man, the inner man. We see in the New Testament a number of people who are possessed by demons. And they act in very strange ways, even dangerous ways. You remember the demoniac, the man with the legion. He acted insane. He could not be restrained with chains. He cut himself. He lived in tombs. He was very much affected by the demons. In the Old Testament, remember, God sent or allowed a troubling spirit to be sent to Saul. And what was the result? Saul had a degree of mental agony. He was pained and troubled in his spirit, and that's why he asked David to play for him. Also, demons, evil spirits, are connected to false teachers sometimes in the scriptures. When Ahab is considering whether to go to war in a certain place, a prophet is speaking with him and tells him, look, an evil spirit or a series of evil spirits are are now in your prophets, your false prophets, and that's why they are telling you a lie that you can go up to this battle and succeed. 
So demons certainly in those scriptures are shown to be able to affect the outer man and the inner man. They were particularly active in Jesus' day. There's an explosion of demonic activity. It's not necessarily that the demons weren't active before, but it's like they couldn't hide themselves in the Lord's presence. The Son of God's presence on the earth really stirred them up. So there was a unique ministry in the New Testament of exorcism. That is the casting out of demons. It was one of the sign gifts, one of the supernatural gifts that validated the apostles and some in the early church as true representatives of God. But that gift passed away along with the other miraculous gifts that accomplished their purpose. So the question is, are demons still doing today what they did in the past? The answer is probably, but less obviously. Might demons be behind anger, anxiety, depression, even delusions that are classified as mental illness? Maybe. Maybe partly, maybe in whole, but not necessarily. Because even though we've made those observations about what demons do in the Bible, let's remember that there are plenty of other instances where you see the same things, physical and inner man affliction, without demons being involved. In Jeremiah 23, 16, we have a situation with false prophets, and God reveals what's really going on. He doesn't say, oh, they have an evil spirit in them. He says they are prophesying from their own imagination. They didn't need a spirit to influence them. It just came from their own minds. Or think about some of the great sins of the Bible, even of God's people. David's sin with Bathsheba. There's no indication that that was caused by a demon. Or the man who was born blind. This terrible physical affliction. Where did it come from? A demon? It's not what God said. He said he was born this way for the glory of God. So Jesus could heal him. Therefore, we should not assume that someone's actions, either without being on psychotropic drugs, or even while being on psychotropic drugs, are demonic. But we should not be ignorant either of possible demonic influence. Even though we are aware of those things, we should be aware of those things, that doesn't really change our approach. Because we must do the same thing, regardless of what influence a a demon might have or might not have on a person. It is to pray, preach, and trust God. You and I don't have the power to cast out demons. You and I don't have the ability to change someone's heart. But God has appointed us as his means for doing that work. And God is pleased to rescue many from the influence, even the possession of the evil one, through those simple means. So that's one question. The other question I want to bring up is, how much room is there for disagreement among Christians when it comes to the nature and benefits of psychotropic drugs, how much room is there for disagreement? And the last week I argued, a, or I gave you a pretty conservative approach. I argued for a pretty conservative approach to psychotropic drugs. 
and that's based on the very shaky scientific foundation of psychotropic drugs, as well as the Bible's assertions about the true essence and or the, the true cause and cure for soul problems. I stand by what I said last week. But at the same time, I do want to emphasize to you that psychotropic drugs is an issue that we need to be prepared to show some grace to each other. Psychotropic drugs are a thorny issue. Some Christians just aren't there yet in their understanding. And other Christians do understand the issues involved, but they just assess the science surrounding the drugs a little differently. Moreover, when you encounter individual cases of someone who's really ensnared in their inner man, so-called cases of mental illness, it can raise difficult questions. There's certainly a degree of mystery. So, what I'm most hoping for in you and in the brethren in general is not so much a complete rejection of all psychotropic drugs ever, but more importantly, three acknowledgments. Three acknowledgments. And that is that, number one, psychotropic drugs are not truly necessary for happiness or holiness as a Christian. Otherwise, the Bible is insufficient, right? And we've seen that. The Bible claims and demonstrates sufficiency. So psychotropic drugs are not truly necessary for happiness and holiness. So-called, number two, so-called mental illness and psychotropic drugs do not remove someone's moral responsibility or spiritual capacity. And number three, psychotropic drugs cannot ultimately treat the root of inner man problems, even if they might make someone feel better or alleviate certain symptoms. If you or someone agrees with me on those three points, I feel pretty good. I feel pretty good about affirming that person in his stance towards counseling others, even if there is still some difference. And it's important I tell you this because... Otherwise, you might get confused if you learn more about the, some of the authors of the articles that I give to you in homework. A number of them, as I've mentioned to you, they come from CCEF Biblical Counselors. That's the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation. Some of these counselors, while all of them would affirm the three points I just mentioned, psychotropic drugs are not necessary, they don't remove responsibility, they cannot ultimately treat the root of inner man problems, some within CCEF are cautiously open to the use of psychotropic drugs. Either by taking an agnostic stance where they will not recommend against it or for it, they know it's not sufficient to deal with issues, but they're more focused on just speaking the word. Or some might even suggest the limited use of certain drugs as helpful in certain situations. Now, even though I might not agree that those are the best stances to take, I still would affirm these men, these counselors, men and women, as being part of those who are faithful when it comes to biblical counseling. They're within the faithful camp. And I believe that enough that I don't feel bad recommending their articles to you. And CCEF is not the only place where you might find some of that diversity. Even when we were in California as part of Grace Community Church, I encountered some men from the seminary, even some who 
have been on the pastoral staff at Grace Community Church, where there's a little bit of variety in their particular stances. Not to the point of being majorly different. And I'm sure even in this church, there is some variety. So, let's be prepared to welcome one another in Christ, despite some differences of opinion over this issue. Always remembering that the most important part of biblical counseling is not getting someone on or off of psychotropic drugs, but showing, how, showing people how Christ and the gospel reveal heart problems and then show the way to deal with them biblically. So those are two follow-ups to last week. Now, with that being said, let's talk about the homework for last week. So I asked you to do a number of things. Of course, Bible reading and prayer. But I also ask you to read two chapters, two if you did the extra credit, one if you just did the regular, from the Christian Counselor's Medical Desk Reference. And all about psychotropic drugs. So let's, let's hear some of your observations and questions that you had based on the reading. What's something that stuck out to you or that you noticed? Yeah, Steve. Can you say the last part again? That's right. So this is a very important truth about life. Uh, He's pointing it out from the article. Just because two things happen at the same time does not necessarily explain why one happens or why both happen. As one way to say it is correlation is not necessarily causation. That's extremely important, not just for counseling, but even for things like assessing the economy or politics or just all sorts of things in life. And you actually see this in the Bible, too. There's a really interesting spot in Hosea, and I think also in other places, where Israel is thinking to themselves, hey, when we served other gods, things went really well for us. They're like, you look for this correlation. When we were serving false gods, things were good. But then God steps in and says, that was just me being merciful to you. That's not the reason why things were good. Come to me. Don't go to the false gods. So correlation is not causation. That's a very important point for counseling. What else? Yeah, Mark. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, Mark. So the author talks about the example of Nebuchadnezzar. Mark's pointing out this kind of principle of when someone seeks the Lord, his reasoning returns. That certainly was true in Nebuchadnezzar's case. And that even fits with what we were talking about recently in Iron Man, where the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? And that's part of what the author's point, and I, and I think generally true principle, it's not that we can't speak to somebody who is mentally ill. They have to get out of that before we can speak to them. No, in, in, in many cases, if not all cases, the Lord is still able to reach that person with his truth. Now, I know some physical afflictions can get in there, like if they're totally sleepless or if they're... Um, They might have some physical issues going on that might impede that. But the Lord clarifies. The Lord clears away 
issues in the mind when, when he's working by his spirit. What else? Yeah, Glenda. Interesting. So Glenda is pointing out um, insanity could be self-inflicted. And we looked at even David's actions with the king of Gath. Now that whole instance is kind of interesting because we even talked about that in Sunday school one time. David is clearly putting on an act. This is part of a disguise. And you may say, well, he was not trusting the Lord. This is sinful. Well, the weird thing is there is a psalm in which he kind of celebrates God's deliverance in that instance, which is weird if he was acting sinfully. I actually argued in a Sunday school class that David wasn't acting sinfully. He was actually being very clever. But um, it is an example of what apparently looks like insanity might not truly be. But certainly from our mind-body connection class, we do know it is certainly true that what you think in your heart can really start to affect your thinking and behavior. And when not restrained and confronted, you will act more and more insane. And that's a lot of what, what we see in those who are called mentally ill today. You say, how on earth do they get like this? Well, um, so many times it's just those little things in the heart that were not dealt with. And it, it's, it's like a self-inflicted insanity. Yeah. Other thoughts or questions? Yeah, Dwayne. Yeah, so the question is, because it's somewhat obliquely referenced in the reading that you had, you don't get chapter 4. I don't have chapter 4 to give you anymore. Um, if somebody's on already on medication and they come to you for counseling, how should you respond? Well, I have tried to emphasize to you, it's not the most important thing that you get someone on or off medication. It is useful, um, especially if you notice that medication is really affecting a person. It is useful to inform them about medication so that they can think um, more in an aware sense of what they're doing with it. But your main task is still the same, which is I want to speak to you God's truth. I want to show you how whether on or off of medication, you can walk in holiness with the Lord to his glory and to your own joy. And many times... As you do that, and as the counselor is informed about what, what medication really is and, and what its justification is, as they see the Lord's sufficiency, they'll say, why, why do I need this drug? Why am I still taking it? I'm interested in, in, in not taking it. They won't necessarily say that all the time, but again, the point is, it's not, it's not the most critical mission to, to get someone off the drugs. It's uh, more important that you minister the truth. Um, maybe one more question or observation. Yeah, Magda. Mm. 
Yeah, so Magnus bringing out a point in this article I thought was really interesting and something I didn't really have time to talk about in class. But what we think about feelings, especially bad feelings, and our ability to function is often not accurate. Um, Magda bringing out the point, how there talks about how there can be, we think of, no, there can be this cycle where we have bad feelings, which leads to our inability to function, which leads to more bad feelings, which leads to inability to function. It's just kind of like a downward spiral in a person's life. And we think, or we can think, that until the feelings change, I'm not going to be able to change. But actually, your feelings change as your thinking and behavior changes. This actually goes back to something that we'll get to when we talk about the biblical process of change. Your entire view of sanctification can get a little bit distorted if you think the wrong way about your feelings. If you think, I have to feel good, and I have to feel God's love, and I have to feel all these various spiritual things before I can change, well, a lot of times you're never going to change. (laughs) But if you say, I'm going to take on faith that as I walk with the Lord, he's going to give me what he promises which is the contentment that comes with him. It's in the seeking that you receive the reward, not the reward beforehand, and then you seek. Wasn't that what the book of Hebrews says? That when it comes to faith, if anyone is going to be approved by God, he must believe that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. But if we demand, I must have the happiness or the good feelings before the reward, well, a lot of times that's, not just gonna ha- that's just not going to happen. Second of all, that's not what God promised. It is something that you say, well, I, I'm going to go to the Lord in faith. So it's the beginning of a change in your thinking, which leads to a change in action, which oftentimes leads to a change in your feelings. And then you get a positive feedback loop. And where as you seek the Lord and you begin to experience the joy of that, that that causes you to want to seek the Lord more. And then you experience more joy. And that causes you to seek the Lord more. The thing is, you have to break that negative cycle by faith. Say, I can't wait for my feelings to change, as if, like, it's just going to feel a certain way about God. I have to take hold of what he says in his word. That is the reason why a lot of people turn to medication, because they say, how are my feelings going to change without some sort of mood booster? And if my feelings don't change, I can't seek God. It's actually not true. It's in the seeking of God, oftentimes, that your feelings change. These are great questions and great observations. All right, so that was it for the old homework. Let's talk about the new homework. So we're moving on from the Christian Counselor's Medical Dress Reference. These have to do with our topic today, psychology. I want you to read... This is your your regular assignment, besides reading the Bible and praying every day. I want you to read this article by Aaron Cerrone. He's a CCEF counselor. uh, uh, Becoming a Biblical Counselor, a Skeptic's Journey. It actually talks about his experience as a licensed family therapist, basically a secular counselor, and his encounter with and move to becoming a biblical counselor. I think you'll find that very interesting because he kind of has a look into both fields. And he also argues why he made the switch. So I want you to read that article, make your five observations and questions. I don't have a physical copy of the extra credit article, but for extra credit, I'd like you to read The Pastor as Counselor 
by David Pallinson. Now, David Pallinson, that's a name you might recognize. He's p published a lot of counseling books. We have a number of them, I think, even in our book nook. You say, but this is for pastors. Why would I read that? Well, actually, if you just look at the first paragraph of this article, which I'll send to you in your email, one of the very first things he says is, this is for pastors, but if you're not a pastor, I want you to listen in. Because you'll still find that many of the things, many of the principles discussed in the article, they apply to all Christians. And as you go through the article, a lot of it is a comparison of how biblical counseling is superior to psychological counseling, and in many ways is what psychological counseling wish it, wishes it could be. So I think you'll find that very interesting. So please do that if you're able as an extra credit assignment. All right, I took a little bit extra time for introductory material today. But let's get to our main topic. Today we're talking about biblical counseling and psychology. What I want to do today is just introduce psychology to you and then survey a number of very influential psychologists in our country. Six influential psychologists, and we'll compare what they say to what the Bible says. This is just a survey. There's a lot of nuances here that I can't really get to, but we'll survey it. And then we'll take questions at the end. I really hope that we'll do that, because I actually don't have a ton of notes today. There should be time for questions at the end, but the problem is when I know that, I usually dawdle more in the lesson, take more comments, take more questions, and then I'm like, where'd the time go? But I think there should be time for questions today. Anyways, that's the agenda. Let's get into it. What is psychology? Psychology has certainly had a strong influence on society, and I think Many times, we are not aware of how much our society has been psychologized, and even we ourselves. Psychology has really affected the church, even Christians around us. And certainly, it is affecting and, at times, determining the path of those who do not know God. Psychologists, as Ed Welsh said in one of the articles you read earlier, they are like the clergy of our modern atheistic society. They are guiding the people of the world along in a kind of other religion. And we can't say everything that could be said in one lesson about psychology, but just trying to introduce from a biblical perspective what psychology is. Kind of think of it as like an introduction to psychology. But perhaps a more accurate way to say it is an introduction to psychologies, plural. Because the truth is, there is widespread disagreement in the field of psychology on some of the most basic questions. Dr. Street, in his lesson talking about psychology, he, uh, he mentions that there are between 200 and 300 different brands of psychology operating in the world right now. All under the umbrella term of psychology, but with different assumptions and different goals and methods of treatment. This is important for us to realize because we think of science as being something really well established. You know, we test things and everybody can figure out whether that's true or not. But you don't have anything close to consensus in psychology. And you'll see more of that as we survey some of the influential psychologists today. Now, even though there is a lot of differences between um, psychological brands, they do have certain fundamental agreements. Ultimately, they're all seeking to do the same thing. 
The word psychology comes from, as we've already begun to see, the word for soul, psuche, the Greek, and then logos, which is word or steady. So psychology is the steady of the soul. Or as the APA, the American Psychological Association, defines it, psychology is the study of the mind and behavior. What you think about it is a very broad field of examination. We're just going to study the mind and behavior. That involves a lot. Here's another little bit more illustrative definition that comes from simplypsychology.org. Psychology is a multifaceted discipline and includes many subfields of study, such as human development, sports, health, clinical, social behavior, and cognitive processes. That's a lot of subfields within psychology. And that's an important thing for us to realize because what this means, that psychology is such a broad field and has many subdisciplines, many subfields of study, is that not all of psychology should be problematic for Christians. You might hear me, or you might hear other teachers say that, oh, psychology has really hurt the church. But that always needs to be with an asterisk of not all of psychology. For example, when psychologists, certain psychologists might study how the memory works, how our memories work, or when children become able to process and speak language, or how people characteristically indicate that they are lying. Psychologists do studies on these things. These are not necessarily contradictory to the Bible. There's not necessarily anything wrong with this. These studies, they deal often directly with areas of life that can be observed, either biologically or behaviorally. So we shouldn't necessarily reject everything that a psychologist has to say. But there is a large part of psychology which is based on the theoretical, not what can be observed, what has to be inferred. And that's where we run into a lot of problems. A large section of psychology is concerned about the nature of man and why man does what he does. Uh, Now, a person can see the brain, but he cannot see, ultimately, one's inner man. You cannot see someone's mind or what they would call the psyche or the inner self. This part of psychology is based on, therefore, unconfirmed theories and unconfirmable theories. Now, if you've been with us this far, you know that the Bible has a lot to say about the nature of man and why man does what he does. So we should not be surprised that psychologists in the Bible are frequently going to come into opposition There's going to be contradiction between Christ, his scriptures, and the assertions of psychologists. And though we're talking about abstract theories when it comes to psychology, these theories do have a very practical impact. These theories inform how psychologists and counselors will try to help modern men. He's depressed, he's anxious, he's angry, or manifesting some other unpleasant or destructive behavior psychological theory is going to have a major impact. And again, what's the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? 
And the psychiatrist is interested in prescribing medication. But the psychologist is interested in talking. It's usually a conversation when you're talking, when you're meeting with a psychologist. Now, I gave you a handout today, a chart. We're going to now move to that chart. We're going to survey six major psychologists and their theories. And as you look at this chart, my intent is that you will see, as I already began to assert, there is a lack of unity in this so-called science. But also, I want you to see that these ideas have really affected our society. They've even become the language we use without thinking about it. And yet, these theories, to some degree or another, they all contradict God's word. As we go along in this chart, I want you to think with me, and I'll I'll ask you to interact with me. How is it that we see these theories at work today? What kind of terms or ideas or policies or examples do we see of these psychologist ideas in our present world? So let's go to the chart. Six psychologists. All the information, or most of the information, is already filled in on your chart, except for the last one. We'll start with Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud, and what's in parentheses there in your chart is the field of psychology that they're famous for, that they operated in. Sigmund Freud and depth psychology. In this chart, we're all looking at kind of major categories to understand their theory. What do they think about man? What do they think man's problem is? What's the solution to man's problem? And then what's not on your chart, something I added, just kind of like what role is the counselor supposed to take? This kind of helps you remember, or I hope will help you remember, what is this theory all about? So what did Freud think? He's considered the father of psychology, the founder of it. Lived in the 19th century into the 20th century. His view of man is that man is basically an animal. He is an instinctual animal. He has a psyche that is made up of what Freud called the id, the ego, and the superego. The problem is, for man, this is what results in all the unpleasant and destructive behavior, is that in a person, the id, that is the unconscious desires and drives, they're improperly suppressed by the ego, which is the rational control center of yourself. Kind of like what you think of as your mind. The ego is improperly suppressing the id due to the influence of the superego, which is actually something outside of a person taken into a person. This is moral, societal, and religious pressure, even from Christianity. This is the problem. These improperly suppressed id, these desires, they're they're resulting in this neurotic or destructive behavior. So what's the solution? Free the id. Discover what are those suppressed desires and fulfill them without hurting others, of course. But discover and free the id. The counselor plays the role of the psychoanalyst. He listens to the way you talk. He listens to your dreams. He, he scans as a trained expert what he can observe in you and he says, this is what you really want. These are your truly suppressed desires. Let's get them out and let's fulfill them. Now, do you see any modern manifestations of this idea, either in the terms or things we see around us? I mean, certainly id, ego, and superego, those might be terms that you've heard before. They come from Freud. 
What else? Yeah, Mark. Yeah, yeah. If it feels good, do it. Don't let yourself be repressed. In fact, uh, you know, Freud saw a lot of the repression as sexual repression. We need to be sexually liberated. That's a Freudian idea. Because if you're sexually repressed, well, it's going to manifest in all this problematic behavior. Anywhere else you see these kind of ideas? Yeah, Glenda. Okay, just uh, more generally, nothing is sinful. Yeah, and we're seeing that increasingly in our society. This fits with a biological view of man. So he says, well, why are you upset with me for committing adultery or for uh, fornication? We're just animals. These are just our instincts. We have terms like Freudian slip. It's like when you accidentally said something and the psychoanalyst says, ah, that's what you really desire. That's why that came out. That's why you mistakenly said that. Or the Oedipal complex, that comes from Freud. He, he believed that was a kind of suppressed desire. Dream analysis comes from Freud. <laughs> Maybe this is a little too hard, but have any of you ever seen the movie Frozen? There's a very famous song in it, which I feel like would be Freud's theme song, which is Let It Go. Can't hold it back anymore. Let it go. Now, I'm not saying that Frozen's an evil movie or that's an evil song, but that is actually tied to Freudian thinking. can't suppress the desires that you really have. You've got to let them go or else you're not going to be healthy. That's Freud. Let's move over to our second influential psychologist, Alfred Adler. Individual psychology. How does Adler see man? As a socially governed animal. He's an animal, but his interactions with other human animals has a very important effect on him. Man's problem is an inferiority complex. From childhood, when he realized that he was weak and everyone else was bigger around him, or just from the circumstances of his life, man develops an inferiority complex, which leads to unhealthy efforts to compensate. Start to bully others, or intimidate others, or oppress others because they're just trying to compensate for that inferiority complex they feel. What's the solution? Well, we need to instill self-confidence and self-satisfaction in each person. Make them feel good about themselves. They don't have to act in a destructive way. So the counselor is therefore the encourager. I'm here to make you feel good about yourself. Where do we see this today? Yeah, Dwayne. This is where self-esteem movement comes from. It comes from Adler's ideas. Participation trophies. Other things that are making you feel good about your self-esteem. That, it comes from this line of thinking. Because we don't want that inferiority complex. Why is that kid bullying in school? It's not because he's really bad. He just has this inferiority complex. He has low self-esteem. This can even find its way into the gospel. A version of the Christian gospel being what some people call the therapeutic gospel. God is here to make you feel good about yourself. He really loves you. He thinks you're so important. He has such an amazing plan for your life and purpose for your life. It's really all about you. It fits right in with Adler's ideas. Let's keep moving on. Another influential psychologist, B.F. Skinner. Skinner sees man as a conditioned animal. Not good, he's not bad, he just kind of comes into the world as a blank slate. 
The problem is that man so often is placed in unhealthy environments in his past or in his present, and they've conditioned him to act in unhealthy ways. So what's the solution? Let's put him in a better environment. We need to recondition him with a new and better environment. So what's the counselor's role? He's basically the lab technician. You're like the lab rat. You've been improperly conditioned. He needs to figure out new conditions for you to uh, condition you the right way. Where do we see some of Skinner's ideas today? Yeah, Mark? Yeah. Yeah, this is certainly part of the removal of responsibility that we see in different ways. If it's just your environment, it's not really your fault. There was somewhat famous some years ago, the affluenza teen. You remember this? Rich kid who got in trouble for doing something wrong. And his court defense was, I couldn't help it. I was raised in affluence. I just had to act this way. And that was a serious defense. And if I remember correctly, I think, I think he... Oh, what? Go ahead. He, he what? Oh, oh, Okay. You said he got in a car accident? Oh, okay. Oh, okay, that's, that's what he had done. I, well, I, if I'm, tr- I'm trying to remember correctly, I think he got off with that court defense. I don't think he was um, convicted. But that that's just comes from Skinner, this behaviorist idea. It's just about conditioning. We often adopt some of the terms of Skinner. One of his terms that he often used a lot was reinforcement, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement. It's all about conditioning. This can inform the way we even approach parenting. A lot of parents are really afraid of corporal punishment because they think, I'm going to traumatize my kids and they're going to be stuck that way for life. Now, there certainly is a way you, um, when it comes to disciplining your children where you should not be abusive. But this idea of fearing trauma, conditioning your kids with something like that, that's a Skinnerian idea. Or on the flip side, some people, some parents might approach parenting as just changing the behavior. Now, I'll use these rewards, I'll use these punishments so that the kid acts a certain way. We'll we'll train him, we'll condition him that this is the right way to act. Certainly, you do want to train your kids in good behavior and positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement is part of that. But if you don't actually get to the heart, you haven't really done your job as a parent before the Lord. You've settled for a Skinnerian version of parenting and that's not good enough. A lot of social programs operate on a Skinnerian idea. Oh, you know, they, they just came from this environment. We've got to get them in a new environment if we ever expect them to change. Not that a new environment can't help, but that's not going to do enough. So, yeah, Skinnerianism, B.F. Skinner's idea is very influential even today. Uh, I've got to keep moving, sorry. Albert Ellis is our fourth uh, psychologist, rational and motive theory. Kind of moving away from the more animalistic idea, he sees man as a being with rational potential. Not necessarily an animal. He's a being that can think. But the problem is, man is thinking wrongly. He's had in him certain ideas instilled or adopted, certain beliefs, certain patterns of thinking that are just wrong and unhealthy. So what's the solution? Got to help him think properly. Identify wrong thinking and teach new patterns. So what's the counselor? What's the proper counselor, according to Albert Ellis? He's an educator. 
Just got to educate you properly and you'll act right. You'll be happy. Where do we see this today? No, oh, this is at what's at the core. Or go ahead, Marcy. Okay, yeah, I think and Marcy mentioned public school systems. Yeah, that's certainly one place. If we're going to have citizens, healthy and productive citizens, they need to be educated the proper way, and we provide that in our public schools. Or uh, Dwayne, I saw your hand. Okay, evidential evangelism. I think that's a that's an interesting application. But that's right. They just haven't they haven't seen the data. They haven't heard uh, enough of the arguments. But if they just saw the evidence, heard the arguments, surely they would change. Again, there is some value in education. Evidence, even in evangelism, can be helpful. But that ignores certain realities of the heart, doesn't it? A lot of self-help is based on Albert Ellis's thinking, talk therapy, psychotherapy. It's all about, i got to fix your thinking. Now let's go to our fifth psychologist, Carl Rogers, the client-centered approach. Sees man as being with self-fulfilling potential. But the problem is, so often man has gradually developed a sense and expression of himself which is hindered by an unhealthy environment and its rules. Even from religion. The solution, if we want to see somebody act and be healthy in their minds, they need to accept and become fully comfortable with who they are, with who they really are. A counselor, therefore, is not really looking to change you, but just show you who you are. He's the mirror. This is who you really are. We want to fulfill that and make you comfortable with that. Do we see this today? Yeah, Dwayne. Yeah, this fits right into postmodernism. Everyone has their own truth. Actually, I was just reading an article from someone the other day who was pursuing a sex change, and it was described as he discovered his truth. What truth? Who he really is. And this comes from Rogerian psychological theory. The whole LGBTQ movement comes from this, or at least is supported by this. This is who you really are. You were born a boy, but what you really are is a girl. Or you were born as a homosexual. You've got to embrace who you are. People are trying to suppress who you are. That's unkind. You need to be true to yourself. One of the terms that comes from Rogers is self-actualization. If you're going to be happy, you're going to be fulfilled not have problematic behavior. You need to self-actualize. What does that mean? Embrace who you really are. Not to pick on Frozen again, but Frozen 2. You can tell I watch both of these movies. Frozen 2 has a song where its main chorus is show yourself. Show who you really are. Don't be afraid. Show yourself. Now again, I'm not saying that's evil song or an evil movie, but that does fit right in with Rogerian thinking and the ideas of our society. 
Worse than, I think John MacArthur or someone else said this, worse than doing something wrong is to not be true to yourself, to pretend to be something that you're not. Carl Rogers' thinking is very, very, very much pervaded our society. Let's go to one more. Nathan Ackerman, maybe not quite as influential as some of these other psychologists, but still important. He sees man as a family-dependent being. Ackerman is famous for developing family therapy. That is, if you want to change someone, you're going to have to change his family. You've got to change the whole system because he is dependent. Man is a dependent being on those around him. Problem is, according to Ackerman, so many families are dysfunctional. There are established roles patterns of behavior and thinking within families which force other family members to adapt patterns of thinking and behavior that are unhealthy. The solution is we need to change these dysfunctional family relationships by role differentiation. It's kind of confusing what it means by that, but basically families need to be able to adapt. You can't always do and think and act the same ways that you did. Different needs come up in the family. Everybody needs to be willing to adjust. You acted a certain way with them before, now you need to switch, or else the whole family be dysfunctional. Actually, that term, dysfunctional family, we still have today. It comes from Ackerman. I think this is connected to some of the movements to diversify roles in family, egalitarianism, gender roles. We need to be able to adapt, to enforce a certain system, that's just going to lead to a dysfunctional family. In this sense, the counselor in Ackerman system is a cultural healer. You can't change a person until you change the family or even larger systems. Let's now actually compare these psychological theories with what the Word of God says. God, according to His Word, how does... The Lord present man in his scriptures. Man is a physical and spiritual being who is made in God's image. If you really want to understand man and why he does what he does, you have to understand who he is. And the Bible reveals that. He's no mere animal, but he does have a physical aspect. He's made in the image of God. But the problem is, though God made man for fellowship, for service, for rule and obedience... Man has become corrupted in his inner man by the fall and by his continual rebellion against God in a cursed world. Man was made for fellowship, for service, for rule and obedience, but he has been corrupted by the fall. He's in continual rebellion against God in his cursed world. But what is the solution? This won't surprise you. Because this is what the scripture says again and again. It is repentance and faith. Change in the inner man that leads to change in the outer man. Repentance and faith in Jesus Christ according to the good news of salvation. told you at the very beginning that ultimately what biblical counselors do, what you and I as Christians ought to be doing, is just ministering the gospel to one another. That's the solution. It's just different applications and explanations of the gospel. Thus what the counselor we need to really affect person the change they, we, they, they need to be changed 
It's a biblical counselor or even an evangelist. If you're furiously writing these notes, that's good, but I will send the PDF copy of the slide, so you will have those in your email afterwards. Well, I have managed to dawdle the time somehow, so we might not get to our questions, but let's now look at some conclusions based on this chart. Notice in D, what I said at the beginning, there are some big differences between these major psychologists. Different views of man, different views of his problem, different views of the solution. So it is, as I said to you before, psychological explanations for man and his behavior are actually scientifically unreliable. After 150 years of psychological advancement, there's still no agreement. Radical disagreements. By the way, if you were to visit a psychologist today, he's likely not going to be just one of those, operating according to just one of those theories. What is the majority stance of a psychologist today in terms of the theory that they operate on? Does anyone know? Ed Welsh mentioned it in one of his articles. The, the main stance today is eclectic. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. A little bit of Skinnerianism, a little bit of Rogers, a little bit of Ellis. That's usually what you see with a psychologist. But it all kind of depends on the individual, what he thinks would be good. It's not scientifically based. So there's pretty radical differences. But notice some of the commonalities. All of these theories are ultimately atheistic and amoral. They don't take God into account. They try and explain everything without God. And actually, many of them, if not all of them, see religion or Christianity and the Bible as part of the problem. It's part of the repression. It's part of preventing you being who you really are. It's conditioned you in a poor way. They also all treat man, you may have noticed, as a victim. One way or another, he's a victim, which means he's not responsible. He's not really doing wrong. It's his environment. It's his upbringing. They all, rather than confronting man's desires and pride, they justify them. No, it's not that you need to get, get rid of your desires. You need to fulfill them. They all require the special knowledge of a psychologist. You need an expert to help you. It's kind of like a Gnosticism there. They all fail to direct people to the true solution, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. They stop short of that, which means they cannot ultimately help people in the way that they need to be helped most. Psychologists can offer some degree of surface help. Actually, you'll notice these theories, there is a seed of truth to them. Your desires, as Freud says, they do explain your behavior to a certain degree, but not the way you think they do. Your environment has an effect. Your upbringing has an effect. What you think about yourself has an effect, but they don't fully explain it. They don't get to the root of the issue. The root of the issue is in your inner man, and only the gospel and the Lord's Spirit can really address that. But one danger, though, even though psychology cannot 
meet the greatest need, it can actually prevent you from receiving the ministry to your greatest need. Because believers and the people of the world can get wrapped up in psychology and thinking the solution is there and therefore never come to Christ. Or they bring their psychological ideas to the gospel. I've mentioned to you before Colossians 2, 6-8, that passage where Paul warns against being taken captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. We need to take seriously that directive. It's not merely that, oh, that's not so beneficial. It can take you captive. And it has taken Christians captive. Sad to say, I remember Dr. Street telling us a story about a Christian counselor who was operating according to worldly psychological ideas, trying to help a young lady who felt guilty about immorality in her life. But the Christian counselor's answer according to some of these psychological theories, is that, well, the guilt is the problem. And we need to get rid of the guilt by you engaging in this activity until you don't feel guilty anymore. That is not going to set somebody free from what is ensnaring their hearts. That is a way to make it almost impossible for anyone to reach them. Because they will just sear their consciences again and again. And many can come to Christ expecting them to, for him to be the ultimate therapist, ultimate psychologist, and they never actually repent and believe. So, not only can psychology not help in the most important way, but it can actually harm in it in a really deep way. We have to be aware of that. But hopefully you see, even though they sound very wise and knowledgeable, these theories may be impressive. They're actually little use. They are of little use to those in Christ. If psychologists, because they don't understand what man is or what his problem really is, if they cannot truly help man, if they cannot even help themselves, why do we expect them to help us? If they fundamentally misdiagnose man, how can they help us with issues like anxiety, fear, anger, and hopelessness. They disguise their inability, their shortcomings, by labeling various issues as mental disorders or neuroses or diseases of the mind that need an expert to diagnose and cure. But the fact of the matter is, as Colossians says, we already have all the wisdom and power we need in the Lord Jesus Christ to deal with sinful temptations and pride. And painful trials. So this is why we're doing this class. This is why I love biblical counseling. This is the privilege and responsibility we have to minister to one another. We have the truth that can set people free. Psychology can't do that. It can only treat surface issues. It can't set people free. But how do we actually do it? Well, that's what we'll get into, start getting into next time. The biblical process of change. Yeah, sorry, no time for questions. Remember, no class next week. No class October 17th. We'll resume the following week. I'm sure you have questions or comments. Come see me afterwards. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, 
we thank you that you are supreme and sufficient. You have indeed given us all wisdom so that we can answer every person and present every man and woman complete in Christ. But the people of the world don't understand this. And Lord, we even can get entrapped into the thinking of the world and say, oh, this is wisdom. We need to add this to the Bible. Lord, please protect us from that. Lord, I pray that in this church, you would make us skilled in ministering your word to one another, not relying on ourselves. We don't have the power to change another's heart, but you do, and you use us as weak vessels. Lord, be glorified in the rest of this service today. In Jesus' name, amen.